Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, is our text today. If you're using the black Bibles provided by the church, it's on page 814. Matthew 9, 18, and we're going to read down through verse 34. So I'd ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of God's word now. Let's hear the word of God together. Matthew 9, 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was healed. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. As they were going away, behold, a a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. I have two goals with the sermon today. And I believe that they are the same kind of goals that Matthew had as the Spirit led him to write his gospel. The first goal is for you to see that Jesus is God's promised king. To see that Jesus is the promised Messiah who has come into this world to save his people. That's the first goal, that you'll see that, that you'll recognize that. The second goal then is for you to respond to that glorious truth appropriately. To respond to this good news that Jesus, the Son of God, The king has come into this world. That's news that demands a response. And so my prayer is that God will help us respond to that correctly today. So those two goals are going to be the two points for the sermon, if you're taking notes. Point number one, recognize that the Messiah has come. Recognize that the Messiah has come. And then point number two, respond because the Messiah has come. Respond because the Messiah has come. Okay? So that's where we're headed today. 
Point number one is recognize that the Messiah has come. Before we dig into Matthew 9, please turn in your Bibles back to the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. I want to show you one of the prophecies that that talked about the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 35, that's page 595. Ever since sin entered the world, God had promised to send a Savior. Someone who who would defeat Satan, who would rescue his people from their sins, and who would eventually fix everything that sin had broken, creating a new heaven and a new earth where the people of God could worship in the presence of God in peace and in righteousness. This promised Savior was called the Messiah, which means the Anointed One. He would be a king, chosen by God, anointed with the Holy Spirit. Young people, especially you younger kids, when we say the word Messiah, all right, I want you to know that that means king, okay? Uh, it doesn't do us any good if we just have this, this jargon that, that we, don't, we can't define, right? So Messiah means king. He's God's promised king, okay? So God has promised that he would send this king. God told us something about who this king would be. He would be a son of David. That means he would be a descendant of Israel's greatest king, King David. But unlike all the other descendants before him, this son of David would rule in perfect righteousness. Therefore, his kingdom would last forever. And so the people of God were longing for this promised king. Right? When we come to the New Testament, that's, they're, they're longing for the Messiah to come. They're, they're longing for this king to come and rescue them and establish the kingdom of God. But how would they know when the king had come? How would they know when the Messiah had come? I mean, through, many, through the years, many imposters had risen up. People claiming to be the Messiah, but, but they were false messiahs. So how would they know when the true Messiah had arrived? Well, again, through the Old Testament prophets, God had described some signs that would accompany the coming of the Messiah. And one of those passages is right here in Isaiah 35. Look at verse 3. Isaiah 35, 3. This is is God speaking through the prophet to his people to encourage them that help is on the way. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You see what he's promising? God himself is going to come and save you. The Messiah. And now look at verse 5 because it's going to talk about some of the signs that would accompany the Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So do you see the signs that are going to accompany the Messiah? The blind will receive their sight, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, the mute will be able to sing. And there's other Old Testament passages like that that speak about the Messiah uh, doing other, si- or other signs that would accompany him. He would preach good news, he would bring justice to the oppressed, he would set the captives free and even raise the dead. So these are the things the Messiah will do. These, are, these will be evidences that the promised Messiah, the true Messiah, had come. Tangible ways 
that he is reversing the curse of sin. Proof that he is bringing in the kingdom of God. So far in our study in Matthew, we've already seen Jesus do many of these things, haven't we? And here now, in, in this section, in Matthew 9, 18 through 34, we have another set of three uh, miracle accounts lumped together for us by Matthew uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? And so Matthew's been grouping together these true accounts of what Jesus did during his ministry in order to show that Jesus is the Messiah. And so as we come to this, this section today, once again, Matthew is, has he covers them very succinctly. <laughs> this first account with the, the daughter who dies and, and the woman who's, who's bleeding and gets healed. If you look at Mark's account, Luke's account, they go into so much more detail. They tell us about you know, the, uh, the crowd and, and, and they tell us about the, the ruler's name is Jairus. He's ruler of the synagogue. And, and just they, they really develop the story a lot better than, than Matthew does. But once again, Matthew's goal is not to provide us with an intriguing story. Matthew's goal is he just wants to rapid fire, show us the power of Jesus, show us that he is doing the very things that the Messiah, that the scriptures promised the Messiah would do. So he just lumps these accounts together. Again, think about Matthew's audience, right? He's writing mainly for Jews, people who knew the Old Testament scriptures. And so he's, he's lumping these accounts together, delivering them in rapid style fashion to make it clear for the Jewish readers, hey, Jesus is doing the very things that the prophet said the Messiah would do. Jesus must be the Messiah. And so, you know, I think that's pretty cool, right, that Matthew does that. I've, I must confess I've found it uh, kind of challenging when I approach the text to preach it because I'm like, well, like with this first story, um, do I just kind of preach almost like a harmony of the Gospels and bring in all the other details from, from Luke and Mark and just, you know, really dig into the story itself and, and, that, and that would be profitable and, and that could be a sermon all by itself? Or do I just... Um, Try to present it the way Matthew has presented it, kind of the bare bones facts, but so we don't miss what he's doing, right? And that's, I've chosen the latter, all right? So I won't be, I, I may mention a few details um, just because, you know, we know, we probably, many of us know the accounts of Mark and Luke, so I'll, I'll mention a few, but I'm not going to dig into the, as much the humanness of the stories, but I want us to see and be utterly convinced that Jesus is the Messiah today. So with that in mind, let's jump in here. Verse 18 of Matthew 9. While he was saying these things to them, all right, what, he, what we looked at and considered last week, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Again, I will fill in a little bit. Mark and Luke tell us that this man was the ruler of the synagogue, that his name was Jairus. So this is, think about who this man is. He's one of the religious leaders of the city, a man of social standing. But despite that high social standing, he falls down, kneels before Jesus, and he's asking Jesus for a miracle. The other accounts say that it's Jairus' 12-year-old daughter and his only daughter, who was actually dying at this point, but... She dies before Jesus and Jairus make it back to the house. So again, Matthew just even condenses that. 
He condenses that by saying she had died. So it's like Matthew's presenting at the outset what was actually true before Jesus reaches the house because the miracle is going to be the fact that Jesus raises her from the dead. That was, by the way, in in case that kind of makes you raise your eyebrows a little bit about the way Matthew's doing that, that was an acceptable standard of reporting at the time because it doesn't change the fact, the, the important fact that Jesus raises her from the dead. Remember, what, what's Matthew's purpose? He's cutting through all the details to focus on Christ's powerful works of deliverance. So Jairus has heard about Jesus' miracles. Maybe he's even seen some of them firsthand. And now he himself finds, uh, he finds himself in need of a miracle. He's in desperate need. And so he, he probably didn't know everything about Jesus, but he recognized that God was at work through Jesus. And so here's Jairus. No doubt he had probably tried everything in his power to to heal his daughter, you know, all the best that money could buy, but to no avail. She's, she's on death's door. In fact, Matthew says she's, she's dead. And so he comes to Jesus asking him to do a miracle. Verse 19, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So Jesus agrees to go. So he and his disciples are starting to go back to where Jairus lives, where the girl is. Verse 20, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So again, I'm going to try to go through these kind of quickly, but we we do have to pause and just recognize what a sad situation she was in, right? She has this terrible condition that was physically debilitating, but also socially devastating. This discharge of blood meant she was in a constant state of ceremonially un, uh, ceremonial uncleanness. And so what that meant for, for a Jew was that she had to be isolated from everyone. Right? She wasn't allowed to come in contact with anyone because if she did, they would be rendered unclean also. So that meant she wasn't able to worship at the synagogue or at the temple. She wasn't able to be in the marketplace. Uh, she wasn't really to, able to live a normal life at all. The text doesn't tell us, but it's likely she was not married at this point, or if she had been married, that the husband had, had no, very likely left her, saying, you know, I can't, I can't live like this. So for the past 12 years, she's been isolated and ostracized from the community, left to suffer alone. So her desperate situation has brought her to Jesus as well, right? So we've got two people... Desperate needs, they've come to Jesus. And because of her embarrassing condition and social uncleanness, she felt that she couldn't approach Jesus like just from the front, right? And again, the other accounts explain there's a huge crowd around Jesus. I mean, he, Jesus is very popular at this point. So everywhere he goes, there's crowds around him because they've seen the miracles, they've heard about them, they want to know what's going to happen next. And so she actually kind of fights her way through the crowd, sneaks up behind him. She knows Jesus is her only hope. She shouldn't even be there. Everyone she bumps up against, she's actually rendering them unclean by the Jewish law. But nevertheless, she's seeking to get to Jesus, thinking she can just slip in from behind, touch his garment, be healed. And that's what she does. She, again, common theme. Probably didn't understand everything about Jesus. I don't, you know... But she knew that she had a desperate need and, and Jesus alone could meet that need. And so she's seeking him. She's pursuing him. 
So she does. She, she reaches out, touches him. Verse 22, Jesus turned, seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So, right? This is another miracle. Instantly she's, she's healed. I mean, this had been going on for 12 years. Again, the other gospel writers tell us she had tried all kinds of doctors. She tried everything that man could do. Nothing had worked. It had made it worse. But Jesus heals her instantly. So for the first time in 12 years, she, she felt whole again. She's been restored to society. She's been restored to her family. And Jesus, speaking of family, what does he say? Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. He's emphasizing that familial relationship to him. He's saying, you're now part of my family. You're no longer isolated. You're no longer a social outcast. Your faith has made you well. Not only are you healed physically, but but I'm going to heal you spiritually. Verse 23, we move back to the, the ruler. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, that was the mourners, right? Because in their culture, it was customary to uh, hire professional mourners and flute players when someone died. And so it, it's really kind of odd to us, isn't it, right? I mean, because we're going to see these guys are not very sincere, but they're just out there kind of doing their job, you know, playing and wailing. And, and so by the time Jarius and Jesus arrive, these professional mourners are, are there. So you can imagine there's, the, well, you don't even need to imagine, uh, Matthew says, they're making this commotion. So the first thing Jesus says is, get away, verse 24, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So again, you see, these aren't, these aren't like family members that are deeply moved. These are just hired mourners. They go instantly from mourning to laughing. They clearly don't, they think Jesus is crazy, right? They know she's dead. Jesus knows she's dead. But by saying that she's asleep, Jesus is, is alluding to what he's about to do, right? He's He's pointing to the fact that he has power over life and death. And so for, from Jesus' perspective, yeah, it is just like she's asleep because I'm going to wake her up. I'm going to bring her back to life. He can raise whoever he wants and whenever he wants. Verse 25, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And report of this went throughout all that district. Again, we see some common things that we've been seeing in in these healings and these miracles. Uh, Jesus could just spoke a word and she'd be healed, but just like he did with the leper, he reached out and touched her and took her hand, which again would have normally rendered him unclean, but his power supersedes that. He shows his power, he shows his tenderness in taking her by the hand, and a dead person comes to life. Immediately, the girl was brought back to life. Her spirit returns. She gets up. And you can just imagine the celebration happening in the family, right? And you can imagine the, the shock and the good news. And that's what verse 26 says. The report of this went through all the district. 
And that's going to be a common thing we see in these accounts as well, is news of this is spreading, news of this is spreading, and people are starting to react to it, and lines are going to be drawn here. So both the, both the woman who was bleeding and now this, this 12-year-old girl, they both really have been restored back to life, right? The daughter literally, but the woman has been restored back. Like we said, she's gotten her life back. So now the report goes throughout all of Galilee, there where Jesus is ministering. All right, so that's the first miracle. We've got the dead being raised. We've got the, the sick being healed. Now I'll go through the other accounts quickly as well. I'll seek to. Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. This is, this is a, an account later in Matthew. We're going to read about some other blind men that are, are healed on his way into Jericho. But this is an account that's unique to Matthew. And so these men, again, word of Jesus is spreading. They've, they've heard about him. But interesting, they, they know there's something really special about Jesus. He's not just some miracle worker. They're calling him the son of David. Remember what that means? They're saying... We believe you are the promised Messiah. We believe you're the one that, who was promised to David in covenant that one of his descendants would reign forever. And so have mercy on us, son of David. Again, Jesus had just told us, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now he's being asked for mercy himself. Verse 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. So this is probably what the house that Jesus is staying in at the time in Capernaum, and the, and the blind men just follow him in there. It's, it's like they're, I'm, again, I'm sure they had some help or whatever, but they, it's like they are seeking and pursuing Jesus. They're saying, we have a desperate need and only he can meet it. And so Jesus turns to them and says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. So again, we see this theme of faith, right? Everyone's demonstrating faith that Jesus can meet their needs. And their eyes were opened. I mean, any of these miracles are, are awesome, right? But you especially think of a, of a blind person because the first thing they're seeing is, is the loving face of Jesus, Right? Someday we'll all see the loving face of Jesus. And so their eyes are opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Right? If, if you've read the Gospels, you know this happens. Where especially early on when Jesus is, is bringing in the kingdom of God. He's doing these miracles that, that point to the fact he's bringing in the kingdom of God. But yet, they call it the messianic secret. He, he's telling people, hey... Just keep it between us, right? This was a private healing. I didn't come just to be a miracle worker. There's a lot of fervor for the Messiah. People, the, the Jews were wanting the Messiah to overthrow Rome, right? We see that in John 6. They're ready to take him and make him, by king, make him king by force. And so Jesus is saying, I don't need a lot of people st- stirred up and, and them imposing what they think the Messiah should do. I'm defining my mission here. 
So Jesus says, see that no one knows about it. But (laughs) what we often see is uh, people don't obey that, which is kind of odd, right? Because it's like they've just recognized, (laughs) they're they're confessing faith that Jesus is the, the king from God, and yet they're not obeying him in this moment. But I guess they're just, we'll, we'll cut them some slack. Maybe, I don't know. They're so overfilled with joy. Their life has been changed and transformed. And so they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Last account then. Verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. So we've seen Jesus do this already, right? Cast out demons whether it be a single one or a legion of demons we saw a couple weeks ago. This demon has made this man mute, unable to speak. Verse 33, And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So, I mean, this is the briefest of, of all the accounts, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like Matthew is... He spends just as much time talking about the reaction to the miracle as he does the miracle itself. But again, he's showing, oh, here's something else that Jesus is doing that the Messiah was supposed to do. He's healing the mute. And then now Matthew's also showing what was happening with the reactions, right? Fame is spreading. Crowds are marveling. More and more people are gathering. A lot of them don't understand why Jesus has come yet, but they're recognizing something about him. They're believing that he is the Messiah, but then you've got this whole other camp that is um, starting to, in, to be opposed to Jesus, right? And they're saying, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, which we'll talk more about them, but how ironic, right? The very ones who should have been at the front of the, at the, front of the welcome wagon, uh, welcoming in Jesus, they're opposed to him. And this is no small thing they say, by the way, this accusation. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. We won't spend much time on that because we're going to come to it later in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 12, I believe it is. Jesus is going to address that, and that's a serious, serious sin that they're committing. But they can't deny his power, right? It's, it's evident. He is healing people. <laughs> He's casting out demons. I mean, this, this man that was mute now is able to speak. And so even... Christ's enemies can't deny his power. The best they can do is try to question the source of that power. All right, so we've seen, what signs have we seen in this account? We've had a woman cleansed from a 12-year health, serious health issue. We've had a girl raised from the dead. We've had blind receive their sight. We've had mute able to speak. Now turn ahead to Matthew chapter 11. I want to just show you... um, I know we haven't gotten there yet in our study through Matthew, but Jesus himself is going to point to what he's been doing and to, to, make the, 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 to confirm the, the point that I am the Messiah. So in Matthew 11 here, we've got John the Baptist is in prison, so he sends guys to Jesus to ask him, hey, are you really the Messiah? It's like John saying, things aren't going the way I thought they would, Jesus. Are you, you know, I'm in prison here, and the Romans haven't been overthrown yet, and the kingdom of God you know, physically hasn't come in yet, like I w- was expecting. Uh, so are you the promised king who is to come, or should we be looking for another? Is what John asks Jesus through his messengers here. 
But look at how Jesus answers the question in verse 4. Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. In other words, what have you been seeing in my ministry? What have you been hearing and seeing that I've been doing? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. You see what Jesus is doing? He's referencing the, like the passage we read earlier, Isaiah 35 and others like it, saying, yes, I am the promised Messiah. And he's, he's rattling off his credentials here, right? I'm doing the very things that, Messiah w- that the Scriptures said the Messiah would do. I'm giving sight to the blind. I'm cleansing the lepers. I'm healing the blind, lame, and deaf. I'm preaching good news. I'm even raising the dead. And so again, we go back to where we are today. These accounts in Matthew 9 are fulfilling the prophecy that Messiah would bring deliverance. That the Messiah would do these things. Not just random displays of power, although they certainly do display power and compassion, but that he would bring deliverance, that he would actually be reversing the effects of sin. And these physical deliverances serve another purpose as well, right? Not only do they show Christ's power, not only do they show that, yes, he is reversing the effects of sin, because that's why we have sickness and death, is because sin has entered the world. Not necessarily that those blind men had sinned, or that the woman had sinned, per se. I mean, But it's just, in general, that's why we have diseases and things, right? And so Jesus is is reversing those, but they point to an even greater spiritual reality of what Jesus is doing and will do. These physical deliverances portray the spiritual deliverance that Jesus brings to his people, right? By nature, the Bible says we are all dead in our sins, We all have no spiritual life, no desire for God, no belief in Jesus, no realization even of our need. But God, Ephesians 2, 4 says, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. His spirit raised us from the dead, gave us new life in Christ, gave us the faith to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. By nature, the Bible says we are spiritually blind, unable to see the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, unable to see the glory of Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. But God graciously opens the eyes of our heart. Showing us the beauty of Christ. Showing us our need. Showing us who Jesus is and what he has done. Do you remember when he did that for you? When he opened the eyes of your heart. And you clearly saw that you're a sinner who needs a savior But you clearly saw by God's grace through his word, no doubt, that Jesus is that Savior. Praise God for his grace. By nature, we were like the woman, unclean. The the woman with the bleeding, right? Unclean, cut off from God and cut off from his people. We were unable to cleanse our sins. We were unable to find true healing and holiness. Excuse me, wholeness. But God graciously cleansed us by the blood of Christ. He, he graciously and mercifully made us whole by saving us. And now we're no longer separated from God. We're no longer cast off. No, we've been brought near. God himself lives in us. 
We're reconciled to God. We're members of his family. We've been placed in the body of Christ. So we're like that woman, believer. By nature, we were mute, unable to confess that Jesus is Lord, unable to worship God from a heart that had been transformed. But God graciously saved us and, and, and loosened our tongues. Now we testify that Jesus is Lord. Doesn't Paul say no one can confess that Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God in him? So if you're here today and you confess that Jesus is Lord, that's because God has mercifully saved you and indwelt you and given you the new birth. Praise God. He's, he's saved us. He's loosened our tongues. Now we love to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now we love to worship him. Right? That, that old hymn we sing. We love to sing about our king and hail him. Was it blessed Jesus? Now we love to praise Christ with our lips and our lives. So loved ones, point number one is recognize that the Messiah has come. That is huge news. Right? We get, we get inundated with news all the time, you know, 24-7, cable, internet, social media, whatever. Well, here's some news for you. The Messiah has come. God himself has come into this broken world to rescue his people from their sins and to reverse the curse. That is news. That is good news. That's the gospel. These miraculous healings and casting out of demons, those were simply the preliminary attacks against Satan's domain of darkness, right, that Jesus was going to do. Very soon, as we're going through the Gospels, Jesus would deal Satan a decisive blow by dying on the cross and rising again. And then by his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus would defeat sin and death and Satan himself. Right? So the Messiah has come, and he's done all of that already. That is good news. Jesus has risen from the dead in victory. He has ascended into heaven where he now reigns as Lord over all. So recognize that the Messiah has come. Do you recognize that? Now from his heavenly throne, Jesus is building his church until the day when he returns to gather his own and judge his enemies. Oh, what a glorious truth. May God cause everyone in here to recognize that. How does your heart react to those glorious truths? Right? You may say, yeah, I recognize it. Well, great. How do you respond then? How do you react to that glorious truth that the Messiah has come? I mean, such amazing truth demands a response. And actually, just by the very nature of the truth itself, it always leads to a response. Rejection or embracing. That's point number two. Remember point number one, recognize that the Messiah has come. Point number two, respond because the Messiah has come. Respond because the Messiah has come. And I'm praying for God to produce in you two specific responses this morning. All right, I'm, I'm narrowing it down to two. Response number one, 
Come to Jesus in faith. Come to Jesus in faith. Come to Jesus for salvation. The Messiah has come. God has come to save his people from their sins. And so the response needs to be, come to him for that salvation. Come to Jesus for salvation. That's what these accounts showed today, right? People who realized they were in desperate need, who recognized that only Jesus could meet their need. And the Bible says that we are all by nature in desperate need, whether we realize it or not, right? Because we're all sinners who fall short of, the, of God's perfect standard. And our sin leaves us separated from God. It leaves us guilty before him. It leaves us headed for eternal punishment under God's just wrath. And so we all need forgiveness of sins. We all need to be saved from the eternal punishment we deserve. That's what I mean when I say come to Jesus for salvation. I mean come and be saved from God's wrath. Come and be saved from the penalty and power of sin. And one day from the very presence of sin. Only Jesus can meet this need. We all have that need, right? We all need to be saved from God's wrath. But only Jesus can do that. No amount of good works, no amount of religious activity can pay for our sins and make us right with God. Only Jesus' death on the cross can cleanse us of our sins. Only Christ's perfect life can make us right with God. And so come to Jesus in faith today. Believe that he died on the cross and rose again for sinners like you and sinners like me. Believe that he reigns now as Lord. Right? The fact that the Messiah has come means there's a Savior and there's a Lord. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he's ascended into heaven. He's reigning now as Lord. And so call out to him for salvation and commit to following him as Lord of your life. And the Bible says Jesus will save you. Jesus will save you. Just as we see in these accounts, right? As people came to him in faith, bumbling and stumbling. And, but as they came and, re- and cried out to him, he responded graciously, didn't he? Jesus will save you. He will cleanse you from your sins. He will rescue you from Satan's domain. He will give you eternal life. So come to Jesus in faith. And believer, that applies to you too. Keep coming to Jesus in faith. Keep coming to Jesus in faith. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And so every day we need to come to Jesus in faith, right? Worshiping him as Lord, believing his promises, asking him to teach us his ways, depending on him for daily strength and protection from evil. You know, as I was just studying this passage and working on this sermon, it was like, I know too often we just have this disconnect, don't we? Right? I mean, we, by God's grace, we confess and recognize that Jesus has come, that he's Savior and Lord. But how is that impacting our daily lives? And so, loved ones, by God's grace, let us respond in faith. The fact, the glorious truth that Jesus has come and that he reigns now as Lord over all and that he's coming again to defeat sin and death, that should impact our lives. We, are, we should be different. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus has met our need for salvation, praise God. But we still desperately need him, don't we? Every day, we need to keep coming to him in faith. Not to keep ourselves saved, right? That salvation is of the Lord. But to walk by faith, to to live the life he's calling us to live. To, to, To keep our eyes fixed on things above, on the fact that Christ is seated at the heavenly throne and not not get our eyes on things of this world and politics and, and all this. We still desperately need him. And just as we saw then in our text today, let us come to him in faith. Let us pursue him in faith. Let us daily by faith pursue him in his word, in prayer, in song, in service, and in his body. And I thank God that you've come today by faith to worship together. So response number one, come to Jesus in faith. Response number two, and I'll close with this. Rejoice in Jesus in hope. Rejoice in Jesus in hope. Romans 5.2 says, Through him, Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 12.12 says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. The fact that Jesus the Messiah has come should give us great reason, loved ones, to rejoice in hope today. Right? To rejoice. And and I'm, I'm preaching to myself, honestly. Because, I mean, I, I, you know, I, maybe you can relate. We get so bogged down with the, the cares, the, the daily concerns, right? And they may even be things God's calling you to, but still you get so bogged down with them and you get, right? And you see this world and, oh, let us rejoice. Not in a Pollyanna way, but in a truth-centered way. We know Christ has come, that he is Lord, he's coming again. We know that our sins are forgiven. We know that we are loved by God and will be with Him forever. We know that death will not have the last word. We know that Jesus is reigning now and that He's working all things together for our good and His glory. We know that Satan is defeated and that His ultimate doom is sure. We know that Jesus is coming again to rid this world of sin and evil once and for all. So that should impact our lives. And so may we live in light of the fact that Jesus has come and let us walk with him by faith, in joy, and in hope. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for sending your Son. What a gracious God you are, again, to make these covenants, to make these promises way back in the garden as soon as Adam and Eve had disobeyed you and, and sin entered the world already. Even in, even in dealing out the consequences, you were giving the promises that someone would come and crush Satan's head. And we praise you that you are faithful to your promises. And just as Jesus came and, and did all that you said the Messiah would do, we realize now that he's coming again. And just as he was faithful to come and accomplish what was his mission the first time, we know he's going to be faithful to come again and complete 
our redemption and complete the redemption of this world. And so I pray that you will once again show your sovereign grace. I pray that you will give us all eyes of faith. Maybe some, Lord, you need to remove the scales today for the first time to see Christ as Savior and Lord. And please give them grace, give them life to call out to him. And for those of us whom you've already saved, help us to live in light of this truth. Even as we go through trials and and struggles and and live and, and deal with maybe increasing persecution, help us to persevere and rejoice and hope. Because we know Jesus has come and we know that he's coming again. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing another song of worship.